Well, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we continue in our studies. Um, Dave did the passage in um, Revelation chapter 11, and he looked at verses 15 to 19. And what a glorious picture that was. I listened to his sermon, and what a glorious picture, kind of given us ahead of time, of God on his throne. But I'm afraid the dragon's back, and so I need to give you the other bits again. And so, but, but you know, this passage we're going to look at with this dragon is actually quite an uplifting passage. In the midst of all this dramatic picture, hear God speaking and encouraging His people. So let's look at this passage. and We're going to be reading Revelation chapter 12 and we read verse 1 to 17, the whole chapter. Revelation chapter 12 And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and under her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven crowns or diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the heaven who was about to give, sorry, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, 
If you're not a Christian here today and you've never heard this, you might think, <laughs> you Christians, you mad. You believe this? Come on, dragons, serpents. Well, yes we do. But I'll try and explain that. It's very interesting that through cultures, the dragon has uh, kind of featured quite a bit. And I've got, and this isn't Irish by the way, as someone pointed out to me. This is Welsh. Any boyos here? Good, sorry. So this is, it's interesting how the dragon features, although this is not specifically pointing to Satan. It was the, the whole legend of St. George and the dragon and the slaying of the dragon that's kind of tied up here. But it's interesting that it's a dragon. In the Chinese culture too, it's interesting how, I've watched a few Chinese dancers, how they have that, the dragon dance. It's really dramatic to watch and how he's trying to catch people. But it's interesting that it's a dragon. And through various cultures, even the Romans in the Roman times, had a standard in front of one of the legions which was a dragon. And they'd march with this dragon wherever they were going. It's a dragon. So... I'm not going into, more into that. I haven't done a whole study on the dragon and cultures. but We face our own dragon. I don't know if you read the paper this last week. Uh, on Monday, there's a really great article. And if I wasn't a pastor, I would write more of these articles to stir up this nation. But I've got another job to do. And it was written by Peter Lockhart. You might know him. I don't. But I'm going to read most of it to you. It's called The New Morality. Speaking about New Zealand, this is our dragon. In our new morality, there are no absolute virtues. Depending on the individual and the circumstances, excess, indulgence, intoxication, arrogance and greed may all be praised as moral or condemned as immoral. Despite its contradictions and volatility, however, it is still enforced with unforgiving conviction and authority. The new morality says all men are rapists and potential rapists and should be feared and contained. Think about it a little bit. All the conversations have been happening now, the, the, the Me Too movement. At the same time, it says that if one of these men believes he is a woman, that is truth and moral. We all must play along. We should allow this man into women's bathrooms and anyone who is uncomfortable with this is a bigot. And bigotry is immoral. It is now moral to let children choose their gender from their earliest years. It is immoral to encourage them to conform to sex stereotypes. For a man to prey on a woman is clearly immoral, and we agree with that. Yet if he is married, for him to avoid being alone with a woman, to avoid temptation and or the appearance of evil, is immoral. Why? because it could hold back the careers of women who must meet with him alone. When a woman acts sexually in exchange for receiving professional advancement, this is immoral for the man, yet moral for the woman somehow. In the words of Oprah Winfrey, and I don't often quote her, in the words of Oprah Winfrey at the Golden Globes, she did this because, quote, she had children to feed and bills to pay and dreams to pursue, unquote. Moral. Fornication and birth out of wedlock, moral. Pornography, moral. Same-sex marriage, moral. 
heterosexual marriage. Depends on whether the man leads his family. If he does, that's oppression. Immoral. Efforts to protect the lives of the unborn. Immoral. Exposing clinics and doctors who sell aborted fetal body parts. Immoral. We have a large dragon in this country. There endeth the sermon and you'll be relieved. I'm afraid not. You see, this article in the past speaks about how morally corrupt our society is becoming. Because that is what society is putting up there is right, right? But how did we land up here? It wasn't always like this. You see, contemporary society and existence is baffling at times and it can seem random and unfair and, and one doesn't really know what's going to happen next. Society's moral rules keep changing. When others are in government, the government itself, or sorry, when others are in control, the government, market forces, employers, society, societal trends, vocal minority groups, when they are in control, they don't necessarily have our good at heart. Revelation was written to encourage believers living in the same kind of world just a while ago. A decadent world in which the government then was corrupt and power hungry. When many innocent people suffered. When people feared for their personal safety and their freedoms. Same type of world. Different times. But the question we're going to face this morning in this passage is who is behind all this spiritual and this political power play and this confusion? And the answer, and I'm giving it away already, is Satan. But that's not the end of the story. Yes, he is behind all this, but what's the bigger picture? See, John Revelation, John's Revelation explains this with two visions, and we're going to see two battles, and I use the word battle carefully in the first one. It's a battle between Satan and his woman. And then secondly, we're going to look at a battle in heaven, which is described to us here in this passage. So this battle on earth, this battle on earth is summarised. If you look at the first six verses of your text, just glance at the text there. It's kind of, we have the basic story outlined to us. This vision is described to us. And then he kind of dives away into heaven and there's something that happens there, another battle described. And then he kind of comes back again to the original vision. So what's happening here? Well, in the first six verses, he summarises the main vision for us. He puts the picture out there. And then he breaks away to a second vision. And then he returns in the third section and he gives us more details about the first vision. All right? So you've got to keep that in mind. In the first six verses, it's kind of fast-forward uh, description of this vision. It's like saying, um, I went to the South Island on holiday. Fast fast forward vision. And then the second part where he comes back to the vision is like the details. Well, when we went to the South Island, I stayed at Molesworth Station, I wish, and I went this and I went there and our kids did this. It's more detail, alright? So see it in that light. That'll help you. But, don't lose sight of the picture that's being created here. You need to see this dragon. You need to feel 
this evilness of this dragon. You need to see this woman sitting there who's about to give birth. You need to be with her as she, as she is about to give birth. And us males, you can have to go with us. So who is this woman that we see in verse 1 and 2? A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. There's the first vision. Do you see it? In your mind's eye. You need to use your mind's eye today. See this woman sitting there. And she's about to give birth, and she's crying out with those birth pains. But that's not all. This woman is described. She's, there's some details given to us. She's clothed with the sun. And now, it's not just because John felt like describing her. These are all references to Old Testament scriptures, once again. Can I put you on the spot? What's this all referring to? Clothed with the sun. Yes? Many, many times. Sorry? Yes, Isaiah. Passages in Isaiah describing Israel and God's people, His glorified people. And the woman clothed with the sun. And who else is described as clothed with the sun? The Lord Himself in visions of Him. Okay, and so she's got this reflected glory of the Lord. This woman who's clothed with the sun. The moon under her feet. That's references to passages like the Song of Solomon. We don't often get there. Alright? But if you go and read these passages in Scripture, which describe the Lord's beloved, you'll see that she's given this picture of sitting there with the moon under her feet. Song of Solomon 6 verse 10. She's got a victor's crown on her head. Twelve stars. What do we know about twelve stars? Twelve tribes of Israel. Alright, oh, you're tracking. Excellent. Alright. So, the twelve tribes of Israel. Where else have we heard about the twelve tribes? Come on, think back. Egypt. Before Egypt. Sorry, after Egypt. Joseph, his dreams, okay? Joseph's dreams, the stars all bowing down, including the parents. So, these are all references to John's readers who would hear this vision, and it's to what? To do what? To encourage them to remember that they are the people of God. These visions are there to encourage them before he gets to the next one. And there this woman is about to give birth specifically a reference to Isaiah 66. And we haven't got time to go and read all those. That's why I give you notes. Alright? Isaiah 66, if you go and read those visions in Isaiah, or those prophecies rather, you'll see that it describes a woman who gives birth to many children. And she cries out in agony as she does. Isaiah 26, I will read however. So if you want to turn there with me, Isaiah 26, verse 17. I'll read from verse 16. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. Now there's the connection with the people. Alright? So I'm not making this up. Scripture points to this woman is, and I'm nearly giving it away now, who is she? Is she just Mary? Because if you look at it and it's very shallow, yes, it, Mary, she gave birth to Jesus. That's too shallow. There's more here. We see here a picture of God's chosen people in the Old Testament, Israel. 
His beloved, those who believed in Him, not ethnic Israel, those who believed in Him, who were the Israel who believed Him in their hearts. And yes, historically, Jesus was born from a Jewish woman, but she was a virgin. You see God's plan at work in His people? And she would come, the Messiah would come from the kingly line of David. You see God's hand at work with His people? And so there's this woman portrayed, about to give birth, and you need to see this picture vividly. And then the picture changes, the vision changes. And here we have this dragon. And he's described, and you need to move away from this picture of the woman now. See the dragon in your mind's eye. Here's this great, fire-breathing, red dragon. This big creature. And when you see the the colour red, what's that supposed to associate with? War, death, suffering. We've seen that in Revelation chapter 6 and other passages. And this dragon's got seven seven heads and ten horns. Now, don't get caught up in the details. But the seven heads, referring to Daniel chapter 7 and the vision that Daniel saw there of this creature with seven heads and ten horns. And he gives other details, Daniel does, about ten kings, ten real powers that would come up against the people. But here we see this, this dragon with seven heads, ten horns. Seven heads, he's perfect in his evilness. Ten horns, he's complete in his, his oppressive power. He's hard to kill, this power that comes up against God's people. Political and spiritual power coming up. And in John's time, the Romans coming up against God's people. Rome was an oppressive government coming up against people, killing them. And this power seems persistent and powerful and endless. Do you see this dragon? And on the seven heads, seven royal crowns on his head. On his heads, rather. And what are these seven crowns? Well, crowns represented sovereignty, and I use that in quotation marks. This creature, this dragon, has given himself kingly powers sovereignty, but it's a false sovereignty, perfected false sovereignty. Remember, he's trying to imitate the one who is fully sovereign, because he is the false Messiah. And this dragon comes with his seven crowns on his head, and through force and deception over earth, he rules earth and his domain. Do you see the dragon in your mind's eye? I hope you're scared of it. That's how vivid that picture should be. And it was supposed to be like this in the mind's eye of those believers who read this. And so he carries on with the picture. This dragon's tail sweeps a third of stars from the heaven. And we're going to come to this again. But see the power as he's sitting there in front of this woman. He sweeps the stars out of the sky. Second Peter 2 verse 4 and Jude 6 speak more about this. And you can go and look up. You've got homework to do. We can only do so much this morning. So who is he? Who is this dragon? We've identified who the woman is. Who is the dragon now? Yes. The answer is not because we're clever. The answer is in verse 9. Let scripture interpret scripture. It's the old rule. And so there's the answer in verse 9. Who is he? The scripture says he is the devil. He is Satan. He's the ancient serpent. Ah, association. The ancient serpent? Thank you. Adam and Eve. Genesis. Getting there. And this serpent, the ancient serpent, the devil, the Satan, 
this dragon takes his stand before the woman and he's only got one idea. I'm going to kill this baby that's born. So who is this male child who's described? Verse 5 to 6. Who is he? He's the Messiah. The Lord's anointed one. And and why do we know that? Because of the association of the quotations given there. He will rule the world. Where does that come from? He will rule the world like a shepherd. Psalm 2 verse 9. It's referring to, if you go and read Psalm 2, the anointed one, the Messiah. It's a messianic psalm. He will rule the world. That, that rule is like a shepherd. He will rule with a rod of iron. In other words, he will rule with firmness and justice, not with tyranny like this false Messiah, the dragon. He will rule with firmness and justice. And so there is Satan waiting on the appearance of the Christ child. And he's making a concerted effort. And if you think of the history that we know in hindsight now, Herod, when Jesus was born, what did Herod do? He wanted to kill baby Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was bringing a threat to his own throne, he thought, this king. And so he sent his soldiers out to kill all those babies. And that night in Israel, many, many, many families cried real tears because real babies were killed. This dragon at work. Satan at work. They didn't need to die. This one was behind it. Satan causing evil causing mayhem, causing pain to go out. But God had his plan. Satan waits. He's going to kill this Messiah. And he really tries. Fast forward now. Did he succeed? We're still in verses 1 to 6. Remember the fast forward thing? Did he succeed? No, he didn't. Because the description says that Though he thought he had won when Christ was crucified, Christ was resurrected on the third day. And a little while later, Christ ascended to heaven. And fast forward motion, Christ escaped the dragon's claws and he went right to his Father's throne, seated at the right hand of God. What is that? Where real sovereignty is. And that's the picture given to us here. The child is caught up to God and to God's throne itself, the place where ultimate sovereignty is. Peter speaks about that in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 33 to 36. He tells us that this baby was snatched up to the right hand of God and that is where he is now, the Messiah, the one who rules. There's a lot here. And then this picture says that this woman flees and God nourishes her for a set period of time. 1,265 days, I think it was now. If I quickly look here. 1,260 days. Alright, what's that? A time, times and time and a half. God's specific period when she has to be looked after. And God nourishes her and looks after her. He's always looked after His people. Didn't He in the desert? When they get this image of God looking after this woman, immediately the, the association would be manner in the desert. God looked after His people. Mary and Joseph with baby Jesus, didn't they escape to Egypt? God helped them to get there. Believers fleeing the siege of Jerusalem later. And this would be the association in believers' minds as they hear John's um, vision. How many, many believers fled out of Jerusalem to the 
town of Pella and they got safety there. They, they escaped from the tyranny. God looks after His own. So what's the purpose of this vision? Just looking at the first six verses. Because here's the answer for us. When God became man, it's an encouragement to us as believers and to the believers in John's time. And it's a reminder to them that Satan tried hard to destroy Jesus Christ. But he didn't succeed. Christ overcame Satan right through the ascension. And it allows believers to take heart and endure. God always affects His purposes. And so there's the answer given to us already in those first six verses. But now John does something and he cuts away to a whole different picture. Now if you're trying to see this in linear time, it's not going to work for you. See the pictures. Leave the time alone. We'll come to that. Here's another picture. You've got to step away to a new scene now. And this is now not just the, not the war on earth, but the war in heaven. Verses 7 to 12. And this is a picture that's given to us so that we can understand what's happened behind the scenes in heaven. Because we haven't been to heaven to see, I think. There's a bigger picture here for us in our Christian struggle. You see, we go back in time to a past event, if I can bring time in again. And uh, before we get there, look at the names given there for Satan, because they're really, really important, verses 7 to 9. He's called the great dragon. He's called the ancient serpent. He's called the devil, which means foul-mouthed deceiver. He's called Satan, which means accuser. He's called the deceiver of the whole world. Now keep that in mind. So, who was Satan? Who is Satan? Scripture says, and we get this in Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 14, that he was once called the anointed cherub who covers. He had a high position in heaven. He was one of the angels who was most powerful. He was most glorious in his position. But his pride went to his head. And there came a day when he wanted to become like God. And so he rebelled against God. And he leads a mutiny of angels, or messengers they are called, who come up in rebellion against God and he wants to destroy the paradise of heaven. Now I'm not making this stuff up. Scripture describes this all. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 to 14. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12 to 17. Jesus speaks about it. Alright, so the, all these passages. I want to go to one though. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 to 15. Track with me over here. Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 15. This is what it says. The prophet is speaking about a king, but it's referring to this battle in heaven. There's double speak happening over here. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. We've come across these pictures before in Revelation, right? The fallen star. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the, on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I, here it is. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to hell to the far reaches of the pit. 
You see these descriptions and there are many others in Scripture of what happened in this battle in heaven. And it says to us in this, these verses that we're looking at in Revelation that here when Satan came up against the Lord, the archangel Michael came up against him. How do we know he's an archangel? Scripture tells us, Jude 9. We just have to piece it all together, right? So here the archangel comes against him, a powerful angel in heaven, and he defeats Satan and casts him out. And he casts him out to such a degree that not a trace of them is found any longer in heaven. Not a place for them in heaven any longer. What's that referring to? Daniel's vision. Daniel chapter 2 verse 35. Speaking about Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he would be utterly vanquished. Satan is cast out of heaven. He forfeits his position as the highest creature in heaven and he becomes the supreme enemy of God. God's given us this insight through His Word. And therefore, as believers, we have to believe it. Because we're not there to see the picture. He's given us the picture. And we must believe Him. And so He's thrown out of heaven. And then verses 10 to 12, look what happens. There's this loud announcement when He's thrown out of heaven. There are declarations of praise. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. Satan is vanquished. He's thrown out. God's salvation, His power, the kingdom of God, the authority of His Christ has come in this moment. Satan is overcome. He is the accuser of the brothers. There's more information about him. You see, to first century Christians, when they heard this, this name Satan, or the accuser of the brothers, they were immediately associated with the Roman system. In the Roman system, there was a prosecutor in court, and this is legal stuff now. There was a prosecutor in court, and he was, he was called the criminator. Now, do you associate any words with that? Anyone? Crime. He was called a criminator, the Latin. And his job was specifically to come before the judge and to accuse before the judge. And then the court would proceed and they would try and prove innocence. That's how they worked. So he was the criminator. He was the, the Satan. That was his other name. And that's where this term comes from. And so when believers heard that he's the accuser of the brothers, immediately they would recognize, we've been in the situation, that's why we're in the situation we're in now. We've been persecuted for our faith because of the criminator. Many of them landed before Roman courts. Many of them were put on Roman crosses because of the criminator, the accuser who stood before the throne, before the, the judge. You'll see the association immediately with us as believers. You see, Satan constantly lays accusations against believers before God. That's his job. He can't help himself. That's his nature. And so he stands before God and he says, you see what she did, Lord? She went over the speed limit. Guilty. And she might be guilty if she was me. But what does the Lord say? Satan, I hear that accusation. And it's true. But she has asked me for forgiveness. And my son's blood covers her. 
Your accusation is true, Satan. But you are defeated by my son's blood. Do you see the picture here? Do you see why this vision must have been a glorious vision for these Christians who are caught under persecution? Because how is Satan overcome? He's overcome by the blood of the Lamb. He's overcome by the word of their testimony. Yes, even their persistence in their testimony to death. And so every time time Satan lays a charge against the believer before God, God sees the blood of Jesus Christ as a full payment for their sin. And so Satan can accuse away, and he does. But every time, the blood of Jesus Christ prevails. You see the encouragement? And every time a believer testifies about Jesus Christ and the gospel message goes out, even in the face of persecution, Satan's work is broken down. The accuser's work is broken down. You see it? And so what's the result in verses 12? The result is... Rejoice, O you who stay in the heavens, you heaven dwellers, and you on earth, woe to you. Why? Because Satan exists on borrowed time. He's been cast down to earth and he's destroying the very paradise God created where Adam and Eve started. And so as trouble comes from Satan, it doesn't come because he's strong. It comes because he's defeated and he knows he's beaten. And he's doing all the harm he can while he can. He's trying to maximize collateral damage, if you know what I mean. In battle, if you want to win a battle, you try and take out as many soldiers and equipments as you can. It's called collateral damage. Because without soldiers and equipment, wars are won and lost. And so Satan takes out as many as he can. He causes Maximum collateral damage while he is still thrashing around on this earth after he's cast out of heaven. Is he still alive? Yes, he is. Is he still powerful? Yes, he is. Is someone more powerful than him? Yes. Because he has been beaten. But he's not yet out. His power is temporary and fleeting. It crumbles in the face of the blood and the Lamb. And it crumbles in in the face of the faithful testimony of the Lamb's followers. Jesus confirms this. When When His disciples were speaking and announcing the kingdom of God, what did Jesus say to encourage them? He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's our link, you see. The church's testimony crushes what Satan does. Now, I can hear a question coming up. So, I'm a bit confused now. So, is Satan now defeated or isn't he defeated? Where is he? Is he in heaven? Is he out of heaven? Was he defeated when Adam and Eve sinned or before they were sinned? Was he defeated then? Yes. He was. Because the scene that we read about this morning happened before Adam and Eve if we want to limit ourselves to time. And we're human and that's how we linked. And so before Adam and Eve were created, sometime, we're not told when, he rebelled against God. And so when he was a serpent in the garden, he was already cast out of heaven. And he came to tempt and cause collateral damage right there. So yes, he was thrown out of heaven. Okay, so 
What about at the cross then? What happened there? Well, that's describing the battle on earth too. Because the moment Jesus cried victory when he rose again from the dead, Satan was vanquished. He was beaten. His back was broken. Describing the earthly battle. Did it happen after that stage in heaven? Yes, it did. If you want to limit yourselves to time. So, what about when Jesus comes again then? What then? Is he beaten then? Yes, as well. Then finally. He's not going to writhe around anymore, taking out any more others. He will be thrown into hell. And he will forever face death there. You see, we talk about when. It's not a biblical question, when. It's a human one. Because we link to time. The Bible's not concerned with time in that way. The Bible's more concerned with telling us that Satan's defeat is certain. The Bible's main theme is to tell us that the devil is defeated. He is down, not yet out, but down. And he doesn't have any hope of survival. That's the central theme in Scripture. Because of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God said it must happen. God ordained it. Now we go back to verses 13 to 16. It's a bit of a longer passage, so you just have to go with me today. You got an option. Well, you could walk out, I suppose. We cut back to our original picture. You see the woman about to give birth? She gives birth, and there's that dragon. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, I like that. He's caught in the passive tense. When the dragon saw that he was cast out of it, how did that happen? He's always on the back foot when it comes to God. He still thought he was rebelling against God and the next moment he was thrown out of heaven. He's powerless against our God. When he saw that he had been thrown to earth, he pursues the woman. Who's this now? Believing Israel and those who give their testimony about God. Think of David. How Satan pursued David. Did he succeed? Yeah, he nipped him. He got David. But did he defeat him? No. God protected him. He gave him back the joy in his heart. And he's now listed as, an, as one of the heroes of the faith in our scriptures. Satan pursues the woman and the Lord gives the woman great wings. Now when these people reading or hearing this vision, when they heard the term great wings, they'd immediately think of Exodus. And the way the Lord delivered Israel, because He gave her great wings. Exodus 19 verse 4. And they escaped from Egypt. And they escaped into the desert. And what happened in the desert? God nourished His people. God looked after her. We think of Moses escaping into the desert. Did God preserve him? Yes, He did. And from him He built a great nation. God preserves His own. For a limited time, they have to spend in this time where God nourishes them and then God changes the picture forever and they are glorified with Him. Satan is cast down forever and lost forever in hell. But Satan's not finished yet. The picture continues and it's a, in a way it's a mini picture inside the big picture because as this woman is fleeing, Satan, and now see the picture, he's now called the great serpent. Okay, you keeping with me? He's morphing. 
to use the modern teenage stuff. And this great serpent now pours out water to try and flood this woman to drown her. But what does the earth do? The earth swallows up the water and the woman can go and find safety. And immediately when these believers saw this phrase or heard this phrase, the earth swallowed up the water, immediately they think of two things. What? Sorry? The Red Sea in Egypt where God pushed the water out the way, alright, and they could walk through on dry land. What else? Yes? Yes, He preserved. Yes, in the flood. There's a few things here. What else? Yes, we've got that. Quite a few things. I obviously should have thought of more. You guys are getting good now. Think of the prayer of Moses immediately because Moses refers to these things. The earth swallowing up. God giving great wings. The prayer of Moses, Exodus 15. And also, the sons of Korah. What happened to the sons of Korah? Those who went against God. The earth swallowed them up. Okay? God preserving His own. Do you get it? It's exciting stuff. I don't care about the dragon in it. It's exciting stuff. We can be built up by this in the same way for these believers when they heard this vision. You see, what he was saying here is that when Satan goes against God's own, God protects. But the picture doesn't finish there. We've got to finish this last one because that's where we're affected now. Verse 13 when Satan sees that he's got no hope of catching this woman, she's gone. She's safe. What does he do? He turns his attention and all his anger and all his malice and all the damage on who? The seed of the woman. Who's that? Those who would come to God outside of the nation who believed. Gentiles and anyone else who would come. He turns his attention to them. And who's that? Unless you're Jewish here today, and a believing Jew, it's us. No wonder we go through hard times, because we're still living in this. Satan is pouring his attention and his vengeance out on us. But the promise is, Galatians 6.16, that God will look after us too and nourish his own during this time of our witness. God will look after us. Didn't he promise that to us? Matthew chapter 28, we've got it up on our church wall. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Listen to what it says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And it doesn't end there. The next thing says, And and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, do you hear that promise of God? Yes, Satan is up against us every single day and he will come up against you but Almighty God is there with you and you can stand. Three quick points of application. Firstly, this one. There's no neutrality in this cosmic battle. Satan will try and tell you you can be neutral. He'll try and tell you, you don't have to believe in God. Just put your head in the sand, it'll all go away. There's no Satan. Figment of Christian imaginations in this Bible thing. 
When Adam and Eve chose to listen to Satan's lies and to disobey God, the human race became, became embroiled in that war. And if you are here, I'm afraid to say, you are part of the human race. If I look around you, most of you. And though we are all already fallen, Romans, every member of the human race faces the same choice as the angels did in the past. What choice did they face? Do I fight on God's side or on Satan's side? And yes, I know election, we'll get there later, but in the end it comes down to this too. Will I believe God and His promises or will I believe Satan? Whose side will I fight on? Because you will fight as a soldier on one side. And so to any non-Christians here, I want to put it in plain language today to you. Satan is not your friend. He'll try to be, look like your friend. He's a friendly dragon. But he's not your friend. He's your enemy. He will take you down with him. He's not going to feel sorry for you. You will be in the destruction that he sows around him. And you will join him in hell. He's not going to try and save you out of that either. He is not your friend. Don't believe him. Don't believe that he doesn't exist. Don't believe that God doesn't exist. They do. Denying God's existence and Satan's existence does not solve the reality of your predicament this morning. Remaining neutral is not an option either. Jesus said, Matthew 12, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutral here. It's one or the other. And that's the Gospel call. And I appeal to you, if you do not know Jesus Christ yet, your allegiance today is sworn to Satan. Bow to Jesus Christ. Find the mercy available in Jesus Christ. He will forgive you. No matter how much Satan tells you, he never will. You've sinned too much. You've been an unbeliever too long. Don't believe those lies. Jesus will forgive. He is the sovereign God. That means all powerful. And any sin can be forgiven. But come to Jesus and bow to Him. Otherwise, you will find yourself thrown into hell with Satan. Not my news, God's news. Secondly, he's the accuser. The accuser is a beaten enemy. And as believers here today, take encouragement from this. We all need to hear this today. And I hope this is not all you've heard today, but please listen to this section. Verse 11 of chapter 12. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. This is powerful. You see, every time a sinner is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, Satan's work is broken down. Every time a believer testifies without fear and the good news goes out, Satan's work is undone and the kingdom is built. You and I are part of that. Every time we do not open our mouths when we should, Satan's kingdom is encouraged. Every time we open our mouths and fearlessly proclaim the gospel message, the kingdom of Christ is built. It's as plain as that. 
But I want to take it personal because it's been personal in my life this week and say you've got to have the same. I don't want to suffer alone. Is the accuser beaten in your private life? Think of those moments when you're alone with your own thoughts and your own actions. Is the accuser of believers is he beaten in your private life? Or do you still give in to him? Do you still listen to his lies? When he tries to discourage you and says, God won't forgive you. Your sin's too great. You've been busy with this stuff a long time. God can't forgive you. I want to plead with you. Satan needs to get cast down in your private life. He's already been cast down. Why would you hold on to this figment of the past? Jesus has beaten him. But invite Jesus into your private life. Help him to take over whatever's happening over there. And to forgive you for what you're doing. And to be victorious in those places. I plead with you. Otherwise, you will live with the consequences of what's happening. And how can you overcome him? How can you overcome Satan? Point him to the blood of the Lamb shed for you. Jesus Christ died for me. I don't have to listen to your lies. Point him to the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is active in your life. I've seen him at work in my life. Point him to the willingness to be faithful to Christ, even to the point of losing your life for him. Are you willing to stand for Jesus Christ, even if it means dying? Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Push Satan behind you. Get behind me, Satan. The blood of Christ is in front of me and over me and all around me and will never go away from me. And then lastly, how do we find the safety of God's presence in the midst of this evil world where the morals are changing all the time? Well, the clue is in where is the nature of our security? Is it in physical security or in spiritual security? It's in spiritual security. These believers were dying for their faith, right? That we read about here. You too and I, we could die for our faith. We could be persecuted for our faith. Who knows what's lying ahead in the future in this country? Our security is in our spiritual state before God. How do we find the safety? Scripture's already told us today. By staying holy to God. How? By being, staying separate for His service. How? By keeping the commandments of God in your daily life, in your private life. By holding to the testimony of Jesus Christ at work in your life. Allow His testimony to shine out of your life. And if you're obedient to Jesus Christ's commands every single day, even in your private life, it will spill over into your public testimony. Others will see that Christ lives because you are obedient to Him. He will shine out of your life. You don't have to. And you will join that woman with the moon under her feet. And I'm not saying you're going to the moon. I'm saying you will join that woman by having the reflection of the Son of God all over your life. It will shine out of you. And you too will have a face shining like Moses. 
And others will see that God lives. And glory will go to Him because you're living a life of obedience to Him. You're living a life which speaks of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan will be cast down in your life. He will flee from you because of the presence of God. I want you to turn with me as we finish this service to these verses. Isaiah, and I know it's in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 25. Take words, take encouragement from these words. Twenty-five, verse one. I'm not going to read the whole thing. O Lord, you are my God. Can you say that together? O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Isn't that beautiful? I'll read from verse 6. On this mountain, and he's speaking about coming to the Mount Zion, who is Jesus Christ, who is the place where we will be one day forever. On this mountain, the Lord of all hosts, the Lord of all the armies that are much more powerful than this one, the Lord of all hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. What is that? The veil of sin and death. He will swallow up death forever. Old Testament. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. The the people look at Christians now and there's a reproach on Christians. We need new morals. We don't want to believe what you believe. We are anti that stuff. The Lord will take away the reproach of His people. He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. The Lord of hosts has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, the glory is not going to come to us on that day. Forget it. It's going to go to Him. The chief purpose of man is to glorify God. Catechism question. If you do catechism. Verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. All glory is going to go to God in that day. Satan will be cast down. We will be glorified. We will be like the Lord in heaven. We will worship our Lord together. And God will be glorified. Is that the picture that you are part of? I pray it is, my fellow churchgoer. But if not, how long will you serve the other Lord? This one. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank You for the picture of victory. And Lord, even though Satan is so powerful, his sovereignty is a false sovereignty. And when he comes against us, he is only as strong as we are weak, as we are strong in You. 
Help us in our weakness, we pray. May we point him to the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood which overcomes any sin and brings forgiveness which is white as snow. May we push him behind us and give glory to you and then speak your good gospel news to those around us so that others too may be freed from the kingdom of Satan and come into the kingdom of light. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.